0: So this morning I thought that, um, particularly in honour of having Mark James with us, that we would talk a bit about worship. Uh, Now I've, I've talked about worship before and you've probably heard a lot of other talks about worship and I'm sure Mark's heard hundreds of them. So let's see if we can maybe mention a few things that you might not have heard before. Let me know afterwards. Quite often I'm chatting to new people on a Sunday and I ask them, what do you know about the vineyard? And often the first thing they'll say is the worship. Uh, even people who don't know much about vineyard churches often know something about vineyard worship. And you'll see when you come on a Sunday that we give quite a lot of time and space to worship. And that was something of a vineyard innovation in the early days. Until the uh, 1970s, for the older members of the congregation, you may recall that um, worship or Praise and worship, as it was sometimes called, was basically just singing what were called choruses. Uh, Now, for the younger members, choruses were like Christian nursery rhymes (laughs) for grown-ups. And the standard order of service until then was a hymn-prayer sandwich, you know, uh, hymn-prayer-hymn, hymn-prayer-hymn, and so on. And by and large, the words were singing about God, not singing to God. There was lots of information, but not a lot of intimacy. And John Wimber and the early vineyard were instrumental in changing all of that. In the vineyard, worship is not just something to get people warmed up for the sermon. The worship is just as important in its own right. And that's why we try to gently encourage people not to miss the start of worship any more than they would think of missing the start of a sermon. Another reason that I thought we would talk about worship this week is because at the end of last week's service, someone came up to me with a theological question. Now, you might assume, not unreasonably, that that is my favourite kind of question. But I have to say, it all depends on whether it's an easy one or not. Uh, Anyway, this, this guy said that he'd been chatting to a friend during the week, and this friend was asking him, does God have a bit of an ego problem? Why does he demand that people worship him? Does he have some kind of deep-rooted insecurity, needing to have praise and affirmation all the time? Because people who want all the attention and have everyone fawning all over them are usually not very nice people, are they? And I thought, that's actually quite a, a reasonable question to ask. Maybe one of the privileges of being God is that you can play by different rules. And we all like a bit of appreciation sometimes, don't we? But people who are like that all the time are generally not much fun to be with. So I thought we would take a stab at trying to answer that question as well this week. But before we try and answer it directly, I think we need to do just a little bit of background to answer the question of, well, what is worship in the first place? And just forget about whether we're talking about God for a moment So our word worship comes from an unpronounceable word in Middle English, which is the early Middle Ages, and it means the acknowledgement of worth. And worth means the level at which someone or something is valued or rated. And the easiest way to think about what that looks like in practice is what we fill our lives with. Because all of us fill our lives with the people and the things that we value the most. In other words, whether we are a Christian or not, everyone is a worshipper. So the only question is who or what it is that we're worshipping. Dave Miller from Trent Vineyard puts it like this. He says we worship what we value the most. It's whatever has our heart's affection our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition. Whatever we think about the most, pursue the most, give our money to the most, and prioritise the most, that is what we're worshipping. So worship is way more than just singing songs. Uh, Dave also paraphrased something that John Wimber said. Our checkbooks and our diaries are theological documents. More than anything else, they're telling us what we love. Uh, If you don't know what a checkbook is, by the way, uh, it's how people used to pay for things before we had Apple Pay. So Wimber said, if you want to know what it is that you worship, look at what you do with your time, what you do with your energy, and what you do with your money. And that's why our financial giving is part of our worship. That's why serving on teams on a Sunday is not depriving us of worship. It is part of our worship. Because what we do with our time and our money is not actually a statement about our time and our money. It's a statement about what kind of worshipper we are. It's a statement about the level at which I think God deserves to be valued or rated in my life compared to other things that I do with my money and my time. The uh, columnist in the Daily Telegraph, Rowan Pelling, summed it up. She said, my check stubs tell my life story better than any diary. So everyone is a worshipper. The only question is who or what it is that we're worshipping. Where it is that we're investing our time and our love and our devotion. What we do or don't do in the worship time on a Sunday morning is not the substance of our worship it is the overflow of our worship. Now, one of the problems is that since the Enlightenment, we've interiorized what worship means. Big word, interiorized. In other words, it's been sidelined to our interior thoughts and our feelings. Something that just goes on inside us and that doesn't need to affect what goes on outside us. But to anyone in Bible times... Whatever had captured someone's heart's affection, their mind's attention, and their soul's ambition would be obvious not from their thoughts and their feelings, but as a result of what they did because of that. Jesus didn't say in John 14 15, if you love me, you'll feel nice feelings towards me and think nice thoughts towards me. What did he say? He said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. In other words, you will do stuff As a result of that, Uh, Luke 6.46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, but not do what I say? Because, you know, sin is not just things that we do. Sin is just as much not doing things that we could do, but choose not to do. Which would include things like our financial giving and our serving on Sunday mornings. Jesus said a curious thing about worship in John chapter 4. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, Bible commentators don't really know what he meant by that last bit. But I think we can get a good idea, maybe, if we think about the opposite of truth, which is obviously error. In other words, the right kind of worship versus the wrong kind of worship. So I think that what Jesus is saying is if you're wanting to worship God in the spirit when you know that you're worshipping the wrong things in life at the same time then your worship is never going to be quite right because your worship isn't fully where your heart is at. It's a bit like when Jesus said something else no one can serve two masters at the same time because you'll hate one of them and love the other. Or you'll be faithful to one and dislike the other. And here he's using the example of money. You can't serve God and money at the same time. There's a very obscure verse in the Old Testament that I would imagine only the very keenest Bible readers here will have heard of. And that's in Deuteronomy 22. And it's this. Don't plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Nice little vineyard reference there. But I think, you know, that this is a picture of basically the same thing not mixing up worshipping the right things and the wrong things in our lives at the same time, because both will get spoiled as a result. There's another similarly obscure verse in Leviticus 19. Don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. And I think in both these cases, what the people of Israel were doing is acting out truths, living everyday parables, if you like, as God's people. And these were reminding them not to mix up being worshippers of God and worshippers of the world as well. Not being people who worship God on Sundays but basically worship the world on Monday through Saturday. Right at the start of Jesus' ministry, the first thing he does is to be baptised by John the Baptist. And then it says this, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, be honest, you wouldn't think, would you, that the Holy Spirit would lead anyone into a wilderness to be tempted But that's actually what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation. You know, right at the start of his ministry and calling, just like us, Jesus had to make sure that his heart was in the right place on a few things. And the big one was what we've just been talking about, being a worshipper of God and not a worshipper of the world as well. Because worship is all about which kingdom are we going to live in? And we see exactly that in one of the temptations. It says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Remember what Dave Miller said our worship was? Whatever has our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition. See, as part of being fully human as we are, Jesus had to get that clear in his heart and his mind and his soul. Just like we have to get that clear in our heart and mind and soul as well. And when it talks about worship here, I don't think for a moment that the devil had in mind Jesus singing songs to him. Or even literally bowing down the way that Muslims might do to pray to Allah. I don't think that this little story has anything to do with worship in that sense. I think it had everything to do with whether the things of God or the things of this world were going to get the priority in Jesus' life. Whatever was going to have his heart's affection, his mind's attention and his soul's ambition. Whether Jesus was going to serve one master or two masters at the same time. Now, you may say, well, this is all sounding a bit more costly than just singing songs on a Sunday morning. But, you know, worship in Bible times was costly. To be a worshipper in the Bible times was to be investing in something that had value. Because in the Old Testament, worship was sacrifice, and sacrifice was worship. There was no worship that didn't cost the worshipper something. It might be some grain, it might be a dove, it might be a lamb or a goat. But for everyone who came to worship, it was costing them something. But, you know, if we're honest, for some of us, all our worship is costing us on a Sunday morning is ten minutes extra sleep. And, And that's, of course, only if we intend to get there on time. There were various kinds of sacrifice that people could bring when they came to worship, But all of them were understood as a gift to God. That's what sacrifices were, a gift from the worshipper to God. And I hope that with that quick bit of background, I hope that will make sense of the next verse that I want us to look at, which is in the book of Romans. If you ask my wife Lynn, she'll tell you that Romans is all about what kind of a worshipper we're going to be. Uh, Romans chapter 12 starts with So rather than offering a bird or an animal as a dead sacrifice, which is, of course, costly enough, Paul is saying we need to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, because Jesus isn't asking us whether we're willing to die for him, to be a dead sacrifice. He's asking us if we're willing to live for him and to be a living sacrifice, because that is our true and proper worship. You know, It's relatively easy to say that we're willing to die for him because in 21st century Britain it's highly unlikely that we'll ever be asked to do that. So being willing to be a living sacrifice is actually much harder. And then, no surprise coming here in this verse, do you see how true and proper worship involves not mixing up worshipping God and the things of this world at the same time. Because conforming our lives to the pattern of this world is incompatible with the pattern of the kingdom. You know what a pattern is? A pattern is something that you copy from when you're creating something. So Paul is saying, what is it that you're copying from when you're creating your life? And it's because of what we all tend to do quite naturally. We're all inclined to copy the world around us and allow our lives to become a copy of the world around us. That is why we need so much to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Why we need him to renew our minds. So that should be our prayer. Lord, would you renew our minds? Lord, would you help us to think like you think? Would you help us to see our lives and to see this world the way that you see it? Would you transform us so that we can think your thoughts? And then finally, there's a little promise right at the end here. It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, testing is checking something to see if it works, yes? Approving is deciding whether you like something or not. But I would suggest to you that it's only if we're giving the life of the kingdom a chance, it's only if we are offering our lives to Jesus as a living sacrifice, it's only if our Christianity is costing us something, it's only if we are in the process of being transformed into the pattern of the kingdom and away from the pattern of this world, only then will we be in a place that we'll really be able to test and approve God's will for our lives. Because if everything else that's going on is drowning it out, if we are spending too much time listening to the devil's alternative offer, where he takes us to this high mountain and he says, all this will I give you if you will only bow down and worship me, then there's no way that we're going to be able to test and approve God's will. Still less will we ever be able to see it as being good, pleasing and perfect. So that's ended up as rather a long background to that question that we started with at the beginning. And you've probably uh, forgotten what it is. Um, and it was this, does God have a bit of an ego problem? Why does he demand that people worship him? Does he have some kind of deep-rooted insecurity, looking for praise and affirmation all the time? Now, of course, you will expect me to say, no, of course he doesn't. But really, that's not the question. The question is, why doesn't he? And I think the answer is this. This is how I would answer it. I would say that God does not command us to worship him so much as invites us to worship him. Because worship is all about our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition. If God has captured our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition, then worship will be the inevitable result. But if other things have captured our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition then we'll be worshipping those instead. And as Wimber said, if we want to know which it is, we just need to look at what we do with our time, what we do with our energy, and what we do with our money. While the rest of us are in here worshipping this morning, our Vineyard Kids team are worshipping by being living sacrifices. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what the kids actually do to them, Uh, Remember, that this is just a metaphor at the end of the day. Um, But you know, the Vineyard Kids team are not missing worship when they serve. They're being worshippers when they serve. They're doing something that costs them something. And because of the way the church has grown, because we don't have enough helpers in Vineyard Kids right now to maintain our our helper-to-child ratio, um, some of them will be serving all this morning during both services So that the rest of us can be worshipping in here. So that is the answer to the question, but it's not quite the full answer to the question, because that starts somewhere else. It doesn't start with me having an understanding of God as my master and me serving him in return. It starts with me having an understanding of God as my lover and me loving him in return. And this is all summed up in one short verse. No deep theology, no complicated exegesis. This is one sermon that ought easily to pass what I call the Sunday lunch test. Can people still remember what I talked about when they're having their lunch? Which is always going to be a little bit easier if you're in the second service than the first service. And this is the verse, 1 John 4, 19. We love... Because he first loved us. There's an order of priority there. We love because he first loved us. If we haven't grasped the love of God, if we haven't experienced the love of God, then why on earth would God expect us to worship him? But when we do grasp it, and when we do experience it, why on earth wouldn't we want to worship him? Why on earth would we not want to be living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god as our true and proper worship